Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning again. We are in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 1. Looking at verses 5 to 15 this morning, but as we read, I think we'll back up all the way to verse 1, and we'll read all the way to verse 15. Sound good? Would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? And the Apostle Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The Roman historian Suetonius, he records that in the year AD 49, something happened in Rome that had a big impact on the church there. Though we don't have any hard evidence that explains how the church in Rome actually came to be. It makes sense that after the Holy Spirit showed up in power on that day of Pentecost and the disciples stepped into the house and they began sharing Jesus with just the masses of pilgrims who were gathered there in Jerusalem for the festival... And after the thousands of them that had believed and had, had their lives forever changed as they received the Holy Spirit themselves, well, it makes sense that they returned home after that, the homes from which they came, and they clustered together with each other to form churches. There must have been Jews from Rome who took their new faith with them and shared it with others, and the church began to grow. How large did the church grow in Rome? I don't know exactly. We know from the history books that there were a lot 
of Jewish Christians living there in Rome in the first century. And then, of course, it would have been inevitable that given a, a, a significant number, uh, matter of time, that Gentiles were starting to come to faith as well there in Rome, and so the church grew. But in A.D. 49, there was a disruption that occurred. It occurred between the Jews and those who were Christians. And it really shouldn't come to any surprise to us who are familiar with the spread of Christianity as is recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. We just got finished going through the book of Acts. As Paul went from place to place sharing the good news, what was he often met with? Just, just flowers and trumpets sounding and celebration and open arms. Paul, we're so glad you came. We've been waiting for you. No, it was so often the case, Jews present in all these different places were very stirred up, very riled, and were resistant to his message, sometimes even inflicting violence upon him. So Suetonius tells us there was a dispute, a dispute over somebody by the name of Crestus. Crestus, wait, that sounds familiar. And most scholars think that Suetonius maybe just heard a little bit wrong and that the word, the name there that the dispute was over is really Christus. It was Jesus Christ that erupted this tension between the Jews and the Christians there in Rome. And that's when the emperor Claudius said, we got to do something about it. He took extreme measures and he expels all of the Jews from Rome, get out. We're done with you guys. You think back to Acts chapter 18, verse 2. The reason that those Jewish Christians, Priscilla and Aquila, forced to relocate to Corinth from Italy. And that's where they met Paul. And their connection with Paul while he was there in Corinth is likely the very thing that leads to this letter that we have before us this morning that we're studying right now. And so with the expulsion of the Jews, the church in Rome, it likely went from being primarily filled with all of these Jewish Christians to now all of a sudden all the Jewish Christians are gone, and now who do we have? Well, we have the Gentile believers there, almost exclusively probably Gentile believers overnight. And it must have been, I think, disillusioning for some. If I was one of those Gentile Christians, I would have been starting to feel a little isolated, a little disconnected from the rest of the Christian community. Maybe I'd be thinking things like, what, what's God doing with us here? We had our church. It was growing. It was thriving. Think good things were happening here. And now look, look at us. Look at how few we are now. And maybe I would think something like this. Maybe I would be thinking, you know, it wasn't actually easy dealing with those, uh, those Jewish believers there. Uh, you know, all their customs and stuff. It was all really strange. They were so hung up on this stuff. And we were always debating about what to do and what to celebrate and all of this stuff. Maybe God actually worked through Caesar and removed all of the tension here. Boy, I've been at some churches like that where there has been a split. And some of the people go, whew, wow, it's so much more peaceful now. Hmm. Over the next 10 years, Jewish believers started to come back to Rome. 
and they came back to a church that must have looked a little different. A blended church started to form once again, but from what we can ascertain, much more Gentile heavy than Jew heavy. Now imagine, what kind of tension would have existed in that church? Jews who came with all of these ties to their laws, to their traditions, and the non-Jewish members, they didn't have any ties to those things. Imagine the changes that probably took place over those 10 years, the shifts in leadership that took place, the emphasis on what it is that we do here at this church. What does this church actually look like? What is its culture here? And what we have here in Paul's letter to the Romans is a focused effort to bring all of these Christians together around their new life in Jesus Christ. He wants them to see the awesome power of this good news and how it changes everything and unites them in such a way that even the biggest differences among them, they just really aren't that significant because Christ changes everything. The gospel, it's the, it's the rally point here. Hope is our new found anthem. Last week, we began to look at Paul's introduction and the way he wasted no time declaring this gospel of God. Today, we read on and we see more of that impact of this gospel Guess what? It's not just for the Jews. And it ain't just for the Gentiles. No, it's a gospel for all people and was given for a singular, ultimate purpose. First thing I want to call to your attention this morning is that God's good news about Jesus calls everyone to believe and to obey. Notice in verse 5 that Paul writes, this is for all nations here, this gospel, not just for Jews, those who used to be exclusively known as God's people, no, not just for them anymore. God, he had made a covenant with them way back at Mount Sinai that he would be their God, they would be his people. And so many Jews had been holding on to that reality that if, by, if, that if we are in this, this line of descendants here, by birth, we're a part of this very special family line. And we are alone, the chosen ones, the children of promise. We're the people of blessing. But you know, it was never God's intention that they would be the only people group that would know his goodness and forgiveness and salvation. In fact, all the way back at the very beginning, when God is beginning conversations with this man named Abraham, God made that very, very clear, didn't he? Genesis 12, too, God says to Abraham, I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see from the, from the, from the get-go here, it was God's plan that through this chosen people, this nation that he had set aside for a special purpose, he's going to bring about good 
that goes out to everyone. And this is what Paul is getting at here. At the inflection point, just several years after the great blessing that God had planned from before the foundation of the world, remember Ephesians 1, just, as, just after Jesus had died for the sins of the world, raised back to life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the worldwide blessing is beginning to spread and blossom here. Now the term God's people, it has been expanded to include people who never were, never will be Jewish. And both Jews and Gentiles now stand on level ground. They all need this Savior that's come into the world. It's only through him and him alone that any of them can be made right with God. That's what's going on here. The great spread of God's good news, it's going forth. And just as it was through the Jews that God would bring about the Savior, the Messiah, into the world, it's now through this more comprehensive body of God's people that the news of this salvation is now going to go out and be delivered to the ends of the earth. Let's get a little bit deeper into our passage this morning. Paul writes in verse 5, "...through whom," that's through Jesus, "...we," meaning both himself and all Christians, including those in Rome, "...have received grace and apostleship." Both the Roman Christians and Paul had received God's grace. Yes, they had. When they turned from their sin, they placed their trust in Jesus Christ. God's grace, it covered over them washed over them, saved them from their sin, washed away their guilt forever, their shame forever, and brought them into this new formed and forming family. They become part of the people of faith, sons and daughters of the king of kings. And at that same time, they were made apostles. Not, not in the office sort of sense, that belonged only to Paul and the other 12 apostles, but in the general sense that we mentioned last week, this general sent-out sense, faith in Jesus and the commission to bear witness to that good, good, good news, they go hand in hand, don't they? If you belong to Jesus, then you have received apostleship in the sense that you've been sent out. God is sent you out in the world. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15? You are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. And someone says, well, wait a second here. Um, if he chose me out of the world, then how am I and why am I still in the world? You're still in the world because you've received apostleship. That's why. You, you've not, you, you're, you're here not because you belong here but because you've been sent here. You have a job to do here. You are a sent one, a representative. And as a member of God's people, you are an ambassador to everyone that you come in contact with. That's a tremendous reality that we have to get a hold of in our heads. What does that mean? What exactly am I supposed to do? Ah, that's where we go to Romans 1, 5, in the end of the verse. Bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name 
among all nations. That obedience of faith phrase. Now, that's one that people trip up over sometimes. Is Paul saying that you have to obey to be saved? And the answer is, well, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. And if by obeying you're talking about responding to faith, responding in faith to the invitation, the call that God has put out there, well, then then yes, I guess you could call that obeying. If God's call is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will be saved, then to obey that call would be to receive the gift of salvation. It's a gift, yes? You don't earn a gift. It's not like this Santa Claus deal that we've concocted here, that if you're good enough, well, then you're going to be rewarded with a gift. No, 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 no. God's gift of salvation through faith in Jesus is a true gift. It's given to us who did nothing to deserve it. In fact, we actually absolutely don't deserve this gift. But while it is an unearned gift, we still don't have to receive it, do we? We don't, we don't have to accept this gift. A gift can certainly be refused, right? In one sense, we are obedient to God's offer of grace when we believe. That's what we're supposed to be calling everyone around us to do, to, to this obedience of faith. Oh, have faith in Jesus Christ. This is what you need to do, people of all nations. And we're not earning salvation here, but just receiving it the way we should. But there's another sense. There's another sense in which that obedience is obedience that results from our faith. This is another thing that Christians have been sent out to encourage and to bring about. It is encouraging. It's teaching. It's leading others to uh, other believers to know and live out this new life in Christ in obedience to his commands. Christ didn't save you so that you can go on living like you were before you knew Jesus Christ, before you were part of the family of God. No, he saved you and restored you into this right relationship with God that you might now live in line with him. That's in, in submission to him. If he is king, then I am his subject, and I need to yield to my king. We've recognized that, that going our own way is foolish, it's a waste of time. Not only is it a waste of time, it's destructive to me and everyone I come in contact with. I was once living in darkness, but now I've been brought into the light. You were once a stranger, a foreigner to God and his people, but now you're a member of God's family. You've been brought into his kingdom. Jesus paints a picture for us in, in vivid color in John chapter 15, verse 9. It says this, As the Father has loved me, Jesus is saying, Jesus loved by the Father? Yes, that's a reality he's getting at. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Stop a moment think about this. This, this is incredible. The perfect love that God the Son has known from eternity past with God the Father has now been extended to you and I. 
No, we didn't deserve it. We were simply given this awesome gift of being brought into this special, unbreakable relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus goes on to say in John 15, 9, he says, abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. Have you ever gotten to a place you wanted to go? Maybe you went on vacation someplace. Maybe it was some tropical island. You got there and you were like, I just want to soak this in. Abide in this new love that Jesus has given you. In other words, remain in it. Don't walk away from him. Don't walk away from it. Don't step away from it. Don't go running off looking for someone else that promises high but has no ability to deliver. No, remain in this incredible, beautiful new relationship, new position, new state that you have been given. And the question is, okay, how do I do it? I used to think that it meant reading my Bible, praying every day. Certainly not bad things, good things. Read the Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I remember that. We'd eventually, we'd, we'd go like this, and then we eventually get on top of our chairs. We're like, I'm growing! Reading my Bible, praying every day, those are amazing disciplines that every Christian needs to have. But it's very, very interesting that the formula that Jesus gives here in John 15, he doesn't mention those. No, to abide in his love, it has to do with our obedience to him. Oh, there's that obedience word again. We so often don't like that word obedience because here in the U.S., we're rebels, we don't want to obey. We want to be our own, our own people, do our own thing, chart my own course. To abide in his love has to do with obedience, and it involves our living in line with how he operates. I'm bringing you into the special relationship. Now abide in it. Live in it. Live in line with it. Jesus says in John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, if you keep my commandments, you will Abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. In order for this relationship to be here, there is a, there is a harmony, an in-syncness that needs to happen here, and it has to do with you obeying my teaching, my will, my way. Do you see how living in obedience with God Remaining in his love, those two, are they're connected. This is the good way to live, Jesus says. This is what Adam and Eve, they walked away from all the way back in Genesis 3. Everything went wrong for them when they did. You got pain, you got suffering, you got death. To say nothing of the, the absence of peace and joy. But look at what Jesus says next. John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you so that I might keep you under my thumb and you might do exactly what I want you to do. You're going to live a miserable life and like it. No. These things, I've spoken to you. I want you to know these things. That my joy that I've known from eternity past, that you no longer know because you walked away from me, that my joy may be in you. And that your joy 
might be full. And there is a vocal majority out there that wants you to believe that doing it God's way is for suckers. For suckers. It's the lame way. It's the mediocre way. It's for the ones who are content to walk through life and never really live. <laughs> but what Jesus is saying here is the exact opposite, isn't it? Exact opposite. He's tearing down this ancient lie that says that you can do it better by going your own way. And he's making it clear that the only way to truly live is to abide in God's great love for you. What did he say in John 10.10? 10? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The thief, he breaks into your house uninvited, and he wants to take something from you. He's not Santa. <laughs> he doesn't want to break in and leave presents under your tree. No, he was the serpent that showed up in the tree, wishing only to steal away your devotion to your creator in an attempt to throw egg on the face of this prized creation of God's, namely you and I, as we went tumbling off a cliff. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may, might have life and have it abundantly. Make no mistake, my friends, this is what obedience to Christ brings about. Allegiance, devotion, loyalty to your new king, your Lord, the one who's, who has given all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember that in Matthew 28? He is the path to maximum joy and the high-octane life. So what does obedience to this God of yours look like that Paul says that we're to bring about here? Look at what Jesus says next. Here's my commandment. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Did you see this? This is incredible. Obeying your Lord's commandment is simply about taking this love that he has extended to you and has freely given to you, you and a totally undeserving person that should have nothing to do with this love. You are blessed. It's, it's grace that is unbelievable here that has been bestowed on you. And what are you supposed to do? How do you live in line with this Jesus of yours who brought you into this great love? Well, go figure. It has to do with doing his business doing the same thing, extending that to others. It's about you laying down your rights, your desires, your interests, just as Jesus did, and loving those who aren't so easy to love. Did members of the church in Rome have some people who were not all that easy to love? I think we can count on. And that's why Paul writes in verse 6, including you, <laughs> including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul's saying, yes, <laughs> you also are called to belong to Christ. 
You are among all of these nations that need to have obedience of faith develop here. Gentile Christians, they must have been looking across the aisle at their Jewish brothers over there, (laughs) their Jewish sisters over there. They must have been really struggling, struggling with all those traditions, all that rule following. I wonder how many glances they were detecting from the other side. They see glances from the other side, and they start interpreting those as judgmental, as condemning. They just really think we are the the worst. Ah. And at the same time, they're the Jewish Christians looking over at their Gentile counterparts, and they're going, how on earth could these big guys be a part of God's people? We're God's people. Look at us. Don't we look like God's people? They don't look like God's people at all. I mean, look how irreverent they seem to be. They're just so loosey-goosey about everything and so casual, taking off their sandals, doing this and that, and they're just, uh, what are they doing over there? Look how irreverent. Look how they dress. How can they eat those things that they eat? Here we are honoring all of these festivals and all of these traditions, just like where our forefathers did. They don't even try. We're doing all the things the way that we've always done them. Why can't they get on board with our program? After all, we were God's people first. And we're just talking about the differences between Jews and Gentiles here. We haven't even mentioned things like personality differences. Differences in how people look at the Bible, interpret certain verses, or what they do in their free time, or how they're raising their kids, or the annoying habits they have, or how controlling they are, or how little they seem to contribute when all it seems that I'm doing is serving here. Look at all these chairs I'm picking up all the time here. Trash. And we haven't even mentioned politics. Ooh, let's not even go there. Now, loving others the way Jesus loved us, that's no small order, is it? For us self-centered, self-absorbed, self-promoting people, this is a completely new and foreign paradigm here. And this is why this call to bring about the obedience of faith is so huge. Jesus made it clear in John 15 that our love for others, it's informed and it's fueled by our knowledge and experience of his love for us, for us. And that is exactly what Paul is going to do here in this letter to the Romans to bring a divided church together. What do I want you to see? I want you to see the good news. It's the gospel of Jesus that changes everything. It's having a clear and intimate understanding that your salvation has nothing to do with your works of righteousness. No, 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 no. It wasn't because you were so obedient and so good back then. No, it was not. It has everything to do with the unprecedented act of love from God. And that is what brings us together. That's what makes us whole. That's what sets us apart. It's what compels us to go out and extend that same love to others. Are you tempted to look across the aisle and put up walls between you and the people that you don't like at church or even at home? Are you tempted to look out there at your world and glare in judgment and condemnation? Are you feeling like you just can't, you just, you just want to sit back and keep your faith in Jesus kind of private here? And if so, Paul's letter is for you. This is the call back to what got us all here. 
It's a call to live out your new life that your king has granted you. It's a call to stand in awe and hold precious and boldly proclaim God's good news concerning Jesus Christ. It's a rally cry for the church that we're endlessly different. Hope is the anthem. Okay, that's point number one. God's good news about Jesus calls everyone to believe and obey, and that is a really, really good thing. I just want to tick off the rest of what we've got here, the rest of the points, because they really serve to reinforce that first one. Second thing is God's good news about Jesus, it defines who we are, who you are. Paul writes in his formal address to them in verse 7, to all those who are in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These people there in that church, they were in Rome, and that meant they were in the center of the world. It's the central place of power. It's where all provisions came and spread out. It's where good rule came out and brought order. Other provinces, other cities, they looked to Rome for their provision, for their protection, for their legitimacy, for their, their safety. And yet these people there in Rome, they're also feeling like they're on the, on the outskirts. We're, we're disconnected here from the rest of the Christ, first Christian community, from Jerusalem, the hub of Christianity. Not only that, but with the mix of Jews and Gentiles there in the church, there were certainly been lingering questions among them. Who's in here? Who's out here when it comes to God's kingdom? And that's where Paul lays it all down very, very clear. And he says, you are the people God loves. Beloved is the word. And it was a term that was formerly only used for the Jews. It was something they highly prized, Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, the Jews would say. Isaiah 63, 7. I will recount your steadfast love of, uh, the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. They're just pouring out thing after thing after thing. God, you are, you've been so good to, his, to us. But now people of every nation, Jews and Gentiles, Paul says, are defined by that title. And he writes in verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Romans 8, 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he says, no, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who did what for us? Who loved us. Jesus said in John 15, the Father, as he's loved me, so I have loved you. Friends, there may be times, maybe even today, where you have all kinds of doubts as to whether or not you matter and anybody cares about you. When you look around and feel like you are the least likely to be loved by God because you know a thing or two about yourself 
And you know those thoughts that are running through your head. And you know what you did just this morning or yesterday. And you say, no, 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 no. I don't know if God's grace is big enough for that. That's when you need to look back at the gospel of God and know that if you are in Christ, you are beloved. That is what defines you now. None of that other stuff. You have a new identity. And not only are you beloved, but as we said before, you're called to be saints, apostles. You're, you're, you're sent out here. You're set apart here. Saints, uh, the word for saints is hagios, and it means holy or set apart. This again, formerly only for the Jews and the sacred things that they had, the temple, the priesthood, the Ark of the Covenant. But now, Paul saying, the most holy thing that there is here on this earth, God's most prized possession are his people who are now the temple, the holy temple of Jesus Christ. And he's taken you and he set you apart as his most precious possession. Is that the way you see yourself? Is having been called by God to be saints you know, it's very much unlike other faiths, unlike the Roman Catholic faith, where to be considered a saint, well, you had to be somebody great. You had to do something incredibly generous, unusually wise, especially pious. God, though, calls undeserving people out of darkness, and he sets them apart as his holy ones, his saints, for himself. It's the gospel that redefines you you are beloved. You are saints. Paul goes on to say grace and peace. And those were defining elements for these Christians in Rome as well. Because if you know, if you know Jesus, if he's your life, then you've received his undeserved, unearned grace. And at the same time, you who were once at war with your creator, just cut off relationally from him because you walked away. You now have peace with God through your Lord Jesus Christ. This is incredible stuff. We should be eating this up. God's good news about Jesus, it calls everyone to believe and obey. It also defines who you are. It also produces worship-inducing results. Paul writes in verse 8, he thanks God all the time, all the time for these Christians because their faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, everyone agrees there's a little bit of hyperbole there. But in the known world that Paul knows, he's basically saying, everywhere I go, and Paul has traveled a lot, everywhere I go, I keep hearing about your faith. What are the things that you thank God for? So often I find my myself thanking God for things that, I, that I've asked for. God, help me with this difficult day. Help me get through it. God, help me get over this cold. Help me pass this test. Help me uh, pay these bills. <laughs> and on occasion, I actually remember to thank God for those things. Oh, I was able to pay that bill. Oh, thanks, God. But Paul's reason for praising God here tells us that his focus was finely tuned on the things that God cares about, people in far-off places coming to believe in Jesus. There's something for me to learn from that. 
I think there's something for you and I to learn from Paul's example here. Check out what his desires are in verses 9 through 13. For God is my witness, he writes, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. The good news of the gospel, what is it doing inside of Paul? It's driving him out to other people. This is really interesting. As we saw in our study of Acts, he's very much aware that it is a miracle a miracle that God broke into his life. A person who was out there promoting the murder of Christians and turned his head around. That's an incredible thing. Just like he, he's describing to these Romans, he's been given this grace and this peace and called to be someone who takes the good news to others. These are the things that define his life. And they're moving him. You know what they're moving him to do? They're not moving him to isolate. They're not moving him to shelter in place. They're not moving him to batten down the hatches and hide from others. What are they moving him to do? Get out there and take a risk. Get out there and move towards others. And so the prayers that he's, uh, the, 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 his prayers are consumed with these requests that God might give him just a, a chance to meet these Christians that he's never even met before. Why does he want to meet them? Well, he wants to encourage them. He wants to be encouraged by them. What's more, he wants to share the good news with them. There might be people even out there in that church right now who don't know Jesus. And if I can be a part in helping them come to know Jesus, and what's more, maybe even people in the city there, the Gentiles there who don't know Jesus, maybe I'll reap some harvest there and people will come to know Christ because of me. I want to go experience that. God's good news about Jesus, it transformed this guy named Paul. It should transform us as well. And if it's not, if we see something lacking here, something that doesn't match up with this, this, what God's doing here, if we're not abiding in God's love, and we're not obeying that commandment, if we like to look at ourselves and like to say, well, you know what, I, I, I've gone to Sunday school every single day since I've, I've been here. Or, you know, I, I've memorized all the books of the Bible. Or, I, I have 2,000 verses. I was one of those Awana kids. I'm one of those really nerdy Christian guys, and I, 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 I got it all figured out. Or I don't say this word or that word. I don't go to see those kind of movies or, or whatever it is that we say. If we do all of those things but have not love, oh my gosh, this sounds a lot like Paul. And what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? I'm nothing. I'm nothing. We should be drawn to others. Number four is the gospel draws believers together toward Christ. Paul's drawn to other believers so that he might encourage them on toward Christ. They might encourage him on toward Christ. He's not, he's not delusional here. He knows that he needs encouragement as well. Is that what the good news is doing for you? Is it moving you toward other Christians that they might, you might move together with them toward Christ? That's really what our community groups are about here. 
at Bethany. It's about getting people together that they might bear one another's burdens, look to God's word, talk about the heavy stuff that, they've got, that they're dealing with in life, and see it through the lens of God's good word and move each other on to depend more on Christ and reflect him more in their lives. <coughs> Verse 14, Paul writes that he's under obligation to these Greeks, to the barbarians, the wise, the foolish people. Basically, he's saying, I want to get the gospel out to everybody. And the obligation that he feels is an obligation that you and I should feel as well. Because if you and I have received this good news about Jesus, if we've brought, been brought into this love that was known by the Trinity from before the foundation of the world, we have an obligation to get this good news out because we are now carriers of the flame, carriers of the good news. And if we've been entrusted with that guilt-removing, hope-infusing, future-transforming, life-giving, joy-filling, identity-defining, worship-inducing message of the gospel, we've been entrusted with that. We've got to get it out. Can't keep it under yourselves. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. We need to live it. We need to get it out there. God's good news. Let's land this. Good news about Jesus, it calls everyone to believe and obey. It defines who you are. It produces worship-inducing results. Other believers should be looking at your life, and they should start praising God because they see what's going on inside of you. It should draw us believers toward each other, toward Christ, to encourage each other and to share the good news. And in the end, it produces one thing, one all-important, ultimate thing. This is what really it's all about. And that is the glory of God. It reveals to everyone that he's the only one worthy of praising, that he is the only one who's truly good, the only one who's truly, truly just and holy and loving and worth belonging to. We already read it. We didn't mention anything about it, but Paul writes in verse 5 that through Jesus, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of the name. All for the name. In the end, that's what this is all about. You and I are called out of darkness into his marvelous light, covered in his grace, called to make his love known to others, not merely for our own pleasure or our own benefit, but that we might bring glory to the name which is above every other. That at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of who? God the Father. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even here, in an introduction to a letter, we can pull out rich and incredible truth of our salvation, of our life in you, and our ultimate purpose, Lord, to give you glory as we bring your love, your good, to others. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time we've had. 
Bless us, prepare us, equip us for the work you have us to do today and tomorrow until you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.